The date is the 29th of January 2021 and our guest today is Marjorie Rose, Professor of Economics here at Dartmouth College. Thanks for joining us, Professor. You're welcome. Yeah, great to have you here. So before we get started, um, would it be possible just to walk the audience through, you know, your areas of expertise um, and maybe the classes that you teach here at Dartmouth? Sure. I, um, I am a macroeconomist. I actually spent uh, my first part of my career um, doing macroeconomic policy at the International Monetary Fund and before that at the Council of Economic Advisors. Um, and since coming to Dartmouth, I get to teach what I used to, uh, used to do. Um, I, I basically teach uh, macroeconomics um, which is an intermediate level economics class. I've taught international finance, which is open economy macroeconomics at Dartmouth. Um, and the other thing that I've taught in the last couple of years is an emerging class um, where we study um, macroeconomic policies and reforms in emerging markets and then take students to the countries. And we focused um, so far on Chile and Argentina. So basically I am a macroeconomist and and, uh, you know, and, and very interested in macroeconomic policy issues. So, I mean, today, obviously, we're focusing on the issue of like the fiscal deficit in the US, and I guess more broadly, um, just as, you know, a topic within macroeconomics. Um, but you just mentioned, you know, you, you worked with the IMF, and obviously have experience with countries other than the US. So maybe I could just start off by asking you um, what the general conversation has looked like surrounding um, public finances and things like trade um, in, in the last year, you know, after COVID um, hit? Well, I think most of the focus on economic policies um, since the COVID pandemic crisis hit has been on um, what governments can do to basically replace uh, the demand for goods and services um, that was lost with you know, the shutdowns and the, and the supply chain effects, how we can boost output and, and employment to offset some of that downturn. So I think all countries um, have undertaken some fiscal stimulus packages, um, some larger than others. The US actually in terms of, of GDP is not the largest of the fiscal stimulus packages um, but basically, all, all uh, governments are, are seeking to try to offset some of that downturn and help the businesses and help the households who have been significantly impacted by, by uh, the shutdowns and the fall off in aggregate demand. Obviously, this conversation has a political undertone to it, but I guess we could focus on just the economics of it. So um, I guess just to start off, could we define what a fiscal deficit exactly is for those who might not know? And why are they so significant in discussions relating to um, economics and macro? Sure. Um, well, a simple def definition of the fiscal deficit is just when a government spends more in goods and services and transfers than it's taking in in tax revenues. Um, and it finances that excess spending over taxes uh, by issuing new government bonds. It basically borrows um, from the private sector in order to pay for that excess spending. So the deficit every year is the excess of spending over taxes, and that leads to larger amounts of government bonds, and, and those new government bonds act, add to our uh, stock of outstanding government bonds, which is called the national debt, the total 
bonds, uh, uh, government bonds outstanding. Actually, when, I, when, I'm a Dart, when I'm teaching my Dartmouth macro classes, I have these little chants for five, the five key concepts I want my Dartmouth students to remember like long after they graduate from Dartmouth. And this is my favorite chant. My favorite chant goes something like this. Um, it says, um, this school deficit G less T means a lot more debt for me. Um, and I have the students all do this chant with me multiple times during the quarter. And it's to reinforce like what the definition of the fiscal deficit is and what that actually means for them, the future taxpayers, you know, whether or not you're in the US or um, Singapore, if a country's running a fiscal deficit, it adds to your debt and the people that are responsible for servicing that debt are the taxpayers, both current and future taxpayers. That's the definition of a, a fiscal deficit. And I would say the second part of your question, which is, um, you know, why are they significant in discussions of, you know, macroeconomic policy? Um, the IMF where I used to work, um, there, was a, there was a quip, I think it was from someone outside the IMF, that IMF stands for it's mostly fiscal, um, in addition to the International Monetary Fund. And I think the reason for that is that most of the time countries get into problems with um, macroeconomic policies, it's because they're running fiscal deficits that are not sustainable. So actually, in terms of macroeconomic management, um, the fiscal policy is the critical component of, of achieving macroeconomic stability for a country. Actually, I saw an article recently, I believe it was um, put out by the IMF, and I think they said that countries have to rethink um, that the sustainable level of debt that they can they can have, you know, in, in the wake of COVID. I'm not sure if, you know, you, you saw that or have an opinion on it, um, but could I just ask whether, um, you know, things have changed surrounding um, thinking about what a sustainable level of debt is, um, and, and as a result, you know, what um, fiscal deficit should look like going forwards? Right. So I think it's not just the IMF, but I think economists, you know, across the, the policy spectrum are basically saying we probably need to rethink this. You know, there, there are some rules of thumb in terms of what we used to think was a sustainable uh, fiscal deficit and a sustainable level of uh, national debt. And usually you look at things like um, how does the real growth rate of GDP compare with the real interest rate, the interest that you're paying on that borrowing um, in real terms. Um, and I think what's changed in the last, not just in the past year, but in, in recent years, is that there's been this trend decline in real interest rates, um, like over decades, basically. And the question is, um, the question is really, well, if you have a lower interest rate, you can afford to run um, a larger deficit. You can afford to have a larger debt stock because you, the servicing costs, the interest payments on that debt stock are gonna be much lower at lower interest rates. Um, so I think that's gotten a lot of policy economists um, you know, to think about, well, what is the, the level of national debt? There used to be, um, and the IMF has, you know, a whole, has courses, training courses for government officials on fiscal sustainability. And every country um, that's a member of the IMF 
gets a routine evaluation of their fiscal debt sustainability um, analysis. Um, and you know, there are certain sort of rules of some thresholds where it was thought a country could get into real problems if it go, uh, an advanced economy like the US, if it goes over 100% of GDP. Um, we're at that now, right? Japan has 200% of GDP in terms of, you know, the debt to GDP ratio. Um, and, and we're not having problems and interest rates are, are low and they're, and it doesn't look like interest rates are going to go up anytime soon. Um, so I, I think that's basically getting economists to rethink, you know, maybe we can carry a larger debt load. Um, we'll see. It's, it's, it's interesting because I know even during the financial crisis, and there were a number of um, papers and even a book that came out that, that when we say this time is different, oh, it looks like this is really a different situation and this time is different. That's usually when countries take more risks and then get into trouble. So I'm not sure we know the threshold. And, um, and so right now we're temporarily running these humongous fiscal deficits. Every country is, is, has significantly increased uh, their deficit. Um, but at some point, once the economy um, get, moves uh, safely into recovery, we need to reduce those deficits and maybe even reduce and take measures to reduce uh, the debt to GDP ratio. Um, because we don't know what that threshold is. You know, it's, it's, um, Somebody asked Mark Twain, the famous um, author, um, you know, he was very wealthy and then ended up going bankrupt. And, 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 they, and they said, like, how did you go bankrupt? And he answered, well, gradually at first and then very suddenly. And I think that's the problem with having a large amount um, of, of debt is you don't know when that threshold's gonna change and, and investors suddenly decide they don't want to buy or even hold uh, your your treasury bonds or your government paper. Right. Um, I've got quite a few questions off of that, but I'm really happy you said right. this time is different because I hold with me a book with the same yes. title. Yeah, which is obviously you know um, for those who aren't watching the video, this the book is called This Time Is Different. Um, and I mean, one of the things they talk about was precisely what you were saying, which is basically that there are certain factors which different countries um, should take into account when. I guess calculating or creating a threshold for um, the sustainable level of debt and as a result of deficits. Um, can I just ask you, you know, what factors are these? Um, and yeah, what, what factors are these? Recently, we took a group of students a year ago to Argentina. Argentina's debt to GDP ratio is not that large. Um, I, I don't know if it was like 35, 40% of GDP, something like that. But Argentina has a history of defaults. And so it doesn't take that much for investors to decide that, um, that a, a new borrowing is not sustainable and the new borrowing becomes, you know, increases the risk for default. Um, the US has never defaulted on its government debt. So I think that's a factor is looking at um, looking at the credit risk that each country, the historical credit risk that each country um, has, has had, you know, the U.S. is considered, the government, U.S. government paper is considered the um, safest of all, it's sort of the benchmark um, asset that's considered the safest of, of, of all assets. Um, 
So there are those types of things. Um, how much of your debt um, is denominated in domestic currency versus foreign currency? Um, some countries are forced to borrow in foreign currency. So not only are you um, subject to the whims of foreign investors, um, but also you're vulnerable to, to currency crises. Um, and, and, and you have no option if your debt is, is, um, is in the form of foreign currency, you don't have an option of printing your way, um, you know, using the government printing presses to inflate your way out of, um, out of you know, a, a debt problem. The U.S., all of its debt is in domestic currency. The U.S. Um, is, the dollar is the reserve currency. So there's going to be a huge demand for U.S. assets because of that unique role that the U.S. plays in the um, international financial and trading system. Um, so there are a lot of different factors which affect, you know, how much a um, how much a, a government can safely borrow and how, what level of debt would be safe for a government to maintain. And I think one more thing I was just thinking about was um, you mentioned that you know many countries right now are going into um, fiscal deficits or at least increasing the level of um, you know, fiscal spending. So is there an impact specifically of many, many countries doing this at the same time? Or is, is that not really um, a factor that economists take into account? Yeah, so I, that's a really good question. I mean, it, may, it would make you think like at some point, you know, everyone's trying to borrow at once that there are going to be problems. I think um, why it hasn't created problems is that there was such a fall off in private demand for investment that basically the governments are filling that void that was left for the fall off in, in private investment demand. So it hasn't created problems. And if you look, interest rates have actually fallen very significantly, both because of you know, the monetary policy response by many of the major central banks, but also because of this fall off in, in aggregate demand by both households and businesses. So um, at this point, you know, because we're, we're, we're in, uh, I, I wouldn't call it necessarily, well, we are in a recession. At this point, we've got that, that output gap being significantly negative. It's not a problem. It could be if we keep, you know, if we keep running very large fiscal deficits, it could create a problem. Um, but right now it's not. Most, most economists think it's okay temporarily to run a fiscal deficit if you're in a recession. And I think even some conservative economists who are worried about you know, the sustainability of our national debt have agreed that you know, now is not the time to worry about fiscal responsibility. Now's the time to try to help households and businesses who are suffering um, because of the uh, severe contra economic contraction that we've seen in the last you know, nine, 10 months. Um, but the flip side is you know, we really should run fiscal surpluses once we, or significant, significantly reduce our fiscal deficit once we're in the recovery mode. So I guess that brings us nicely to something I want to talk about, which is, I think, something, uh, I guess, sorry, a term that's being thrown around quite a bit now, which is monetary fury. I mean, is this, is this a relatively new concept? Um, can you just explain what it is and why it's, why it's relevant? Okay, so it's a it's they call it a heterodox theory and it's this idea that um, governments who issue their own currency 
um, can safely, um, instead of borrow to finance government spending, could safely just print money to finance government spending um, without you know, big negative effects. And we should do that in order to boost um, output and especially employment. And it's created a lot of traction um, recently, I would say in the last year, one to two years, modern monetary theory has gotten, I, I think particularly in the social media has gotten a lot of attention. Um, I have to say as, um, as, as sort of more an orthodox, I, I guess I would say a more traditional economist and the more uh, prominent economists think it's basically using seniorage to finance your fiscal deficit and that never ends well for a country. There have been a lot of countries, um, we, they didn't call it modern, modern monetary theory, but there have been a lot of countries in the past who have used the government printing press with a fiat currency to finance government spending, and it typically has ended in high or even hyperinflation. So I think, you know, the, the uh, I know it's gotten like AOC and um, even, you know, Bernie Sanders staff has said, we should do this, you know, it's, 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 there's no such thing as a free lunch. And, um, you know, I think it would be misguided to, to use the government printing press to to finance government spending. So, I mean, you mentioned that the only countries that can do this are those that um, issue their own currency. Um, mm -hmm. So that mean that countries that are, correct me if I'm wrong, are on a peg or countries that use, um, you know, a foreign reserve cur cur currency can't do this. Uh, am I right in saying that? Right, you can't. So um, it, you, you have to have a, single primary target for monetary policy. And if basically your monetary policy is to, I don't even know what your target would be for monetary policy in an MMT framework, but um, you would not be able to target the exchange rate. Um, like Hong Kong wouldn't be able to do this. And Singapore has like a, a, a flexible peg, but it's it's not a hard peg, but it's, but it's, you know, it's, it's heavily managed. It wouldn't be able to do that with modern monetary theory uh, framework. And I think just one last thing that I do want to talk about is um, what we can expect kind of going forward. And by that, I mean, probably in the next, you know, decades, I guess, you said that um, in order to, if, you know, if the government were to want, were to um, recover in, in the sense of going back to a fiscal surplus in the coming years, um, that would necessitate, you know, increasing taxes and other, other policies um, similar to that. So um, just from an economics point of view, um, what do you think that would mean for the next, you know, few decades or generations? So even before the pandemic, the U.S. was on this unsustainable fiscal position. Even before the pandemic, we had um, relatively large and growing fiscal deficits, which led to, um, you know, pretty substantial increases in our in our debt as a as a fraction of GDP. Um, and with the big, and this is not talking about the pandemic, this is talking about the, um, the demographic shift that's occurring, not just in the US, but around the world in most advanced economies, and especially in China, aging population. Um, and the US has these entitlement programs um, that are on autopilot. That is when you retire, you automatically get, according to some formula, 
Social Security and Medicare, Medicaid. Um, and because of this shift toward greater retirees um, in our population, I think I read recently where 10,000 people a day now are retiring in the US and starting to claim um, Social Security and, and Medicare benefits. Um, that we're going, we were going to see an explosive deficit and debt situation just from that demographic change. Entitlements are actually half, close to half of our government spending in the United States. So even without the pandemic and this surge and in, um, in new borrowing, we have a fiscal problem. And it's called the third rail of American politics. No one wants to touch, particularly Social Security or Medicare um, because it's very politically unpopular. You know, we want to take care of our, our, of our older generation. We want to, we've paid in and now we want to collect. Um, but the simple fact is that um, the, the people that are paying in, which are current taxpayers, are going to be far fewer in the coming generation. There just are fewer, um, you know, people in the, in the younger side of the um, population. And so we're going to run into a real problem probably in the next 10 to 15 years, if not sooner, because of those uh, pressures from entitlement programs. So when we talk, there used to be um, there used to be a recognition of the need for fiscal responsibility. There used to be a recognition of the need to have a very low manageable fiscal deficit or even um, the need to um, maybe even reduce the national debt. I think the last time the US had a fiscal surplus was 1999 and, and 2000, and they were very small. Um, but since that time, since the 90s, where we had a coalition between, I think, the Republican-led Congress and the Democratic president, President Clinton, and they came together on a bunch of compromises to have modest increases in taxes and some modest um, reforms in some spending programs, for, in, for instance, the welfare program in, in the US. That, and, and then they also had a boost from very strong real GDP growth. We managed to um, reduce the fiscal deficits and bring down um, the national debt. But since that time, no matter which country or which uh, party is in power, um, we seem to have adopted this attitude that deficits don't matter and we can have big tax cuts and we can have, um, you know, Republicans in particular like tax cuts and we can have um, large increases in spending and there's no consequence. Um, and I think so far there hasn't been a big consequence. But again, is this time different? No, I don't think this time is different. And I think at some point it makes us vulnerable um, to, to a hard landing. If investors suddenly decide they don't think that the U.S. debt is sustainable or they don't want to buy U.S. government paper, we could have a really hard landing. I don't think we're going to end up with a debt crisis like, like the European debt crisis after the, you know, after the, after the financial crisis with like Italy and Greece and Spain all coming under um, severe pressure. I don't think we're going to have that. Um, but I think you know, at some point, investors may become less reluctant, less enthusiastic to hold government paper. I think even without the, the problem of a debt crisis, large fiscal deficits 
have significant effects if they're sustained. Um, this, by this, I don't mean we have a temporary increase in the fiscal deficit, but if we continue to have large fiscal deficits, um, it can have severe negative impacts on, on your economy. I mean, the first, the classic impact is um, crowding out. Um, you know, right now we don't have crowding out because there's there's been a big fall off in private investment. We get into recovery and the government is still borrowing a lot. It could lead to um, higher real borrowing costs. And that means businesses would undertake less capital investment, fewer capital equipment purchases, fewer factories being built, um, households would have fewer, um, less demand for, for new housing. So our capital stock wouldn't be as large, our capital stock wouldn't grow. Um, and that probably will have long-term implications for um, our potential output growth for real GDP. If you have a smaller capital stock, you're gonna have less real GDP. Um, it could also lead to um, you know, a lot of other problems like you know, a fiscal deficit leads to a trade deficit. There's, that's called the twin deficit problem. Countries that run fiscal deficits tend to have trade deficits. And the reason for that is the trade deficit basically reflects the difference between national savings and investment. And if you're not saving enough, and a fiscal deficit means the government has negative government savings, and if that's not offset by really high private savings, then you're gonna to have to borrow from abroad to finance that investment. You get this capital flowing in, foreigners buy your government bonds, they buy your real estate, they buy your, um, they buy your uh, stock, corporate stocks and bonds. So you get a lot more of your capital that's owned by foreigners and the profits and dividends and interest on, on that financial capital, those claims on your physical capital, go to foreigners, not domestic residents. So it's kind of, it's very interesting. There are a lot of these um, more subtle impacts of sustained fiscal deficits um, that people tend to ignore. Um, you know, usually we just look at, oh, it, it, you know, leads, high fiscal deficits lead to crowding out. We haven't seen a big increase in, in real interest rates at this point, but we have seen um, you know, a widening of our of our trade deficit. You know, the Trump tax cuts led to a big increase in our fiscal deficit, and unsurprisingly, we had an increase in our trade deficit, um, and that has um, you know long term implications. Countries that run significant trade deficits, then you get a lot of things like. Um, if you run a fiscal deficit, um, and especially with these growing entitlements, it's gonna to start to squeeze out spending that is less political. So it's really hard to cut social security. It's not as hard to cut spending on infrastructure. So we've got this crumbling um, infrastructure uh, system in the United States. Every once in a while you re read about a bridge falling into a river. Um, we're not making the investment to, to both to maintain our infrastructure and upgrade having, you know, uh, broadband available to everyone, including in, um, you know, suburban and rural areas in the U.S. would be a form of infrastructure that we probably need to undertake. Um, so that's going to be those types of spending, infrastructure, education, um, would be more likely to be crowded out. And if you crowd out infrastructure and education, 
that's going to affect your productivity. Um, and with lower productivity, you're going to have a slowdown in, in real output growth. So that's kind of like a more subtle, um, less evident impact of a, running a sustained fiscal deficit that we just, you know, we just sort of dismiss and ignore. Um, and there are some countries like Zimbabwe and Venezuela and Argentina who had large fiscal deficits and a large debt stock. And then when foreigners and, and when uh, domestic residents as well decided they didn't want to buy government bonds, it forces the country to use seniorage, kind of like MMT, to force them to print money to finance government spending, particularly if you have a weak dependent central bank who can't say no to the treasury or the ministry of finance, then you end up with high inflation or even hyperinflation in some of these cases. So there are a lot of problems with fiscal deficits that we have ignored. And we've sort of had this leeway, I think in the US because of the global savings glut where people wanna buy US assets because of the US dollar being the reserve currency that's given us a lot more leeway in running fiscal deficits. But um, you know, at some point it's gonna bite and who it's gonna bite are the younger generation, who it's gonna bite um, are the future taxpayers like my Dartmouth students um, who are gonna be forced to reckon with, um, you know, forced spending cuts or higher tax, um, higher tax rates um, in the future to service this, um, this larger debt and the, and the pressures. And I would say the other thing to think about is like the interest payments on the debt. You have a larger debt stock, you're gonna have a lot larger interest payments, even at low interest rates. Our um, annual interest payments in the US um, for on, on the government paper was something around $300 billion a year, um, which is larger than the combined budgets of Department of Environment, Justice, um, Homeland Security, um, education, like all of that, all of those other departments, the spending that goes on in those other departments was smaller than what we're paying on to service our um, the interest on our national debt. So um, I think those are all really good reasons once we're through the pandemic to try to get um, an effort and it's gonna take um, pressure by your generation basically to try to get some fiscal responsibility back in place because we haven't had it in 20 years. Thanks, Professor Rose. That was, you know, very well fleshed out. Um, I guess just for our listeners who might not have, you know, technical grasp of um, economics or, you know, who may not be majoring in econ, um, if there's, you know, one or two things, maybe a chant just to take away from this um, episode, um, what would they be? Well, I would say, you know, my chant, fiscal deficit G less T means a lot more debt for me, um, is, you know, you you own the debt, you own your country's national debt. And, and so it's important for you to pay attention. What, what are you spending? Is it, is it something that makes sense? Um, you know, what are your taxes and what's a, what's a, you know, a reasonable tax rate? Um, and to be concerned about, you know, your fiscal deficit, I'd say that, you know, that is something that, um, all young people in the younger generation should be more aware of. It's you can't live beyond your means 
even if you're a country, you can't live beyond your means for that long. You need to take responsibility. Okay, well, uh, Professor Rose, thanks so much for joining us. That was really um, informative.